1: Rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. We are so excited to bring you writer, editor. And Anthony Bourdain's lieutenant, I believe he called you for almost a decade, Laurie Wooliver. Thank you so much for being on Bitch Talk. Absolutely. Thank
2: you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. (laughs)
1: Yes, we are so excited too. Um, So you've written a bunch of books with him. You co-wrote Appetites, The Cookbook, mm-hmm. uh, World Travel, An Irreverent Guide, and most recently, which I'm so excited to get into, which is Bourdain, The Definitive Oral Biography. That's right. Um, and in the the biography, you, a lot of people are talking about how they first met him. So I'm curious to know, uh, what was your first experience with Anthony Bourdain? How did you become his lieutenant?
2: Mm, yeah. So I first met him in 2002. I had actually been Mario Batali's longtime assistant, uh, which is its own probably its own <laughs> podcast episode. Yes, that <laughs> that's a that's a episodic. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I had done that for a long time, and I was getting ready to leave. And Tony had published Kitchen Confidential a few years before that, and he and Mario became friendly. And Tony was looking for someone to help out with his first cookbook, which was called Anthony Bourdain's Layal Cookbook. Mm. And he wanted someone to do recipe editing and testing, which I had done with Mario on a few of his books. So Mario recommended me. And just based on that recommendation, Tony hired me to help him out. So the first time I met him was a meeting that we had about that book. And having read Kitchen Confidential, like everyone else in the world, I was expecting a certain (laughs) kind of brash, swaggering, you know, pirate uh, ship kind of guy. And, uh, he wasn't really like that at all. And if you, if you read the biography, you'll see a lot of people had that expectation of him. And that was a, a persona that he could put on and take off, but really at his core, he was a very shy and somewhat socially awkward guy who was very polite and, uh, had a little bit of trouble making eye contact sometimes and always seemed to be a little bit on the back foot, kind of waiting for the meeting to be over so he could move on to the next thing. And that was very much my experience. He was very polite and very professional, but not at all kind of the the public persona that I had expected from reading the book. Uh, So that was my first time meeting him. And really from that point on, a lot of our uh, interactions were were not in person because he was traveling so much and because he was just a really busy guy. Uh, but so I did, I did that book with him and that was kind of a limited project, just a year or so of working on the book. And then I didn't become his assistant until many years after that. I, I went on to... Uh, work as an editor at Art Culinaire magazine and then Wine Spectator magazine. And Tony, of course, went on to be a you know hugely famous international uh, superstar author and television host. Uh, we briefly worked together in 2007. He needed somebody to help him out with a traveling uh, gig, doing uh, a speaking engagement and some cooking and some book signings and stuff uh, in Montana one weekend. And it was great. I was thrilled that he asked me his assistant at the time. too pregnant to travel so he just kind of you know thought i could probably fill in and that was super fun and then years later i had a baby and i was looking to kind of change the way that i was working and see if i could figure out a way to work from home or just not you know be working full time and i reached out to tony and a number of other people that i knew from the industry and just said you know this is what i can do this is what i'd like to do i'm just looking for something that kind of fits my needs and i just had a baby And Tony, his daughter, I think was a little over a year old at the time. And so he really understood what that was like to have a kid and to, to want to kind of spend more time with your family. And his assistant happened to be on her way out. And he said, you know, I'd love to hire you as my assistant. It's, I know it's kind of beyond the scope of what you, your, your experience, but would you consider it? And I was like, yeah, definitely. You know, I, I wasn't really looking to be anyone's assistant at that point, but because it was Tony uh, I knew that it would be worth kind of taking the the, the title downgrade <laughs> and just doing the job. And mm. I I never regretted it.
0: I, I wanted to switch back to the autobiography that, that you wrote um, and wanted to ask, he passes away and um, everyone's processing it, kind of <laughs> the world is processing it and people that were very close to him are processing it. Um, when did you decide to write an autobiography
2: about him? And 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 what sure. did that look? Yeah. So like just to be clear, it's a it's an oral biography, um, uh, which is a you know it's a form of biography in which people tell their stories about a person or a thing, and it becomes kind of a, a quilt or a you know a tapestry of of different voices and different perspectives. Uh, uh, this is a project that came up pretty quickly after Tony died. I was in more or less constant conversation with. His agent, Kim Witherspoon, who is now my agent, and also his publisher uh, and editor, Dan Neil Halpern, who was the time, who was the founder of, of Echo, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. And, you know, we already had the, the world travel book was already in motion. So there was a conversation about what do we do with this? How do we press on? How do we change it? And then uh, Kim and Dan came up with this idea of, of doing some kind of biography as I'm sure you can imagine, a lot of people came out of the woodwork very quickly after Tony died, looking to, for lack mm. of a better word, capitalize on this tragedy. Uh, you know, people saw an opportunity, saw how many people were moved by his death and by his work, and there were all kinds of pitches for TV series, or people wanting to audition wow. to be his replacement, or people wanting to make a film about him, or wanting to write a book about him. And we thought, you know, we really would like to to get in there and do something that comes from a place of knowing and comes from a place of, of having the, um, uh, the agreement of Tony's estate, which is to say his, his wife, Atavia, and his daughter, Ariane, uh, you know something that really gets at who the man was, uh, you know, written and, and uh, piloted by people mm-hmm. who actually knew him. So the idea of the oral biography came up as a way to, to do that. Uh, you know, a, a traditional biography is something that is so deeply researched that it could take, you know, five to 10 years. And we didn't want to wait that long. That isn't I, I really respect people who do traditional biographies. That's not something I've ever done. And I, I mean, I'm sure I could do it, but it was for me, it was much more rewarding to do this this format of the oral biography I got to spend so much time with other people who missed Tony who were so devastated by this loss and who had really interesting and sometimes really funny stories to tell about him and insights and things I never knew about him um, I got to meet people that I didn't even know existed that were part of uh, you know his world uh, from from way way back and uh, and just it was it for me it was hugely cathartic. And the hope was that uh, that that the final product would also hopefully be cathartic for people who, who were so impacted by his death and, and hopefully will answer some of the questions that people have of how somebody who seemed to have the perfect life could get to a point where they choose to end their own life
1: yeah pr- prior to this interview we were both saying we just love how you mm-hmm. set this book up it really feels like we're sitting around a table of his closest friends and allies and and um it just it's so intimate uh, the way you put it together really love it um and in terms of like meeting new people and hearing new stories one of the things that i was interested in learning is he had this obsession yeah. with Hannah, yeah. <laughs> I was, yes <laughs> i respect that and you know some people may guess why but i just I was like, oh, that makes sense because he always did have a nice you know, little glow to him. Uh, But I'm curious, what was something new that
2: you learned about him through these interviews? Every single person that I spoke with, and there were close to 100, there are 91 voices in the book, Mm -hmm. and there were few that that I didn't end up using the interviews. Uh, Every single person I spoke to had something new to tell me, some new story or some little insight or analysis or perspective that was new to me. So there were so many things. Uh, you know, the, uh, one of the biggest things that was really surprising to me, but now makes all the sense in the world is that he had this deep, deep ambivalence about being on television from the beginning. There was this sense that, uh, television's kind of a necessary evil and, you know, I want to do everything I can to kind of grab the brass ring and television looks like it's going to be a part of that. So I'll, I'll give it a chance, but there was from the beginning, all the way through the end, there was this real ambivalence. About being on camera, about being that guy, uh, in some ways, about becoming the thing that he had railed against when he wrote Kitchen Confidential. You know, these chefs that leave the kitchen and go on television and cultivate this persona. He was never truly comfortable with that, and which I think honestly made for the best television, you know, that, that little bit of tension and discomfort and, and uh, fourth wall breaking where he would acknowledge the weirdness of, of being that guy. Uh, so that was those were insights that I got from a number of people, including his editor Karen Rinaldi, who who was the the commissioning commissioning editor for Kitchen Confidential, and a lot of his uh, television production partners. Uh, so it's, that was a, that was a big thing. Which now again, it's like oh, of course you know of course that's that's who he was. You know the tanning <laughs> thing was a funny little uh a bit of a uh, bit of of humor that you know it was kind of a through line i mean his brother talked about it and his uh kitchen colleagues from the 1980s and then his first wife nancy said she knew that things maybe weren't so great with him when she saw that he had kind of let his tan go <laughs> that's huge <laughs> so, i felt
1: that yeah, level. Yes. yeah.
2: <laughs> there were some great stories um One of his uh, directors, Alex Lowry, tells this great story about being in, I think it was Prague uh, uh, or maybe it was Budapest, uh, someplace in in Eastern Europe where Tony was just not having a good time and something, I won't spoil it, but something really funny happens with a dog that kind of breaks (laughs) the tension and makes him realize he's being ridiculous. Uh, you know, there are a million little stories like that. All of the people that spent time traveling with him on the road have have great stories of, uh, of you know, funny little moments. And in some cases, really poignant, heartbreaking moments uh, on the road with him. Uh, you know, his daughter, Ariane, who was 12 when I interviewed him, and she's mm. 14 now, just had some uh, really um, lovely memories of him that she shared, uh, you know, some things I knew and some things I didn't about how they would spend their downtime. And, I think people have this misconception that Tony was constantly living that on-camera life where he couldn't just go on vacation to a normal place and have a normal room service hamburger and watch HBO, you know, that he was constantly <laughs> chasing that special bowl of noodles or that very, you know, far flung experience. And, uh, you know, when you, when you, um, read the things that his daughter said, he actually craved that kind of normal fun family stuff that just was about being together and having a good time, not about uh, doing something so that you could write about it or talk about it on camera later. So that was really moving and, and and a lovely thing to to learn as well. You know,
0: we talk about grief a lot on the show. (laughs) I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just a constant, right. And as you get older in life, it's just, it's here. Um, Um, And we've been through a hell of a time Mm -hmm. in the last Mm -hmm. two years now, very uh, grieving a lot. Um, I wanted to know, while you're writing this book and also finishing World Mm -hmm. Travel, were there times that your grief was like, I can't do this
2: today, I can't go there, and I just need a day? You know, especially at the beginning, and especially with World Travel, uh, it was extremely difficult to get back to that work and i just couldn't quite get myself to do it i couldn't quite wrap my mind around the the scope of the project and also just how i'm supposed to make this fun lighthearted funny informative book that that encompasses you know all of tony's travel when tony's not here anymore you know we had meant for him to write a bunch of original essays and, you know, fortunately I got to sit down with him before he died and go through and kind of create a bo- a blueprint for that book. So I had that and I still have that conversation on mm. tape and I have the transcript and that's what I worked with, but it was very, very lonely because, you know, that was the kind of book where it was going to be the two of us really spending a lot of time together, fleshing it out. And then it was just me. Uh, so I did, I, you know, basically the summer after he died, I, I really did uh, the bare minimum of work, just kind of would look at the notes every once in a while and kind of move things around on a page. And I did have a tough conversation with with Kim Witherspoon, our agent, and said, like, I don't, I'm not sure I can do this, you know, and she sort of gave me an out, but she also gave me a little bit of, uh, I wouldn't say tough love, but, you know, she said, okay, well, if you really feel that way, we can go down that path, but this is what it's going to mean. And you know, and I had already gotten my advance, you know. Right. So it's yeah. like, do I want to give it back? Do I want to give that money back? Yeah. That's real. That's, oh, a motivator. that's real Yes. Talk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Money definitely gets you to do things yeah. that you might not otherwise yeah. do. But it also was, I think I just had to say it out loud to somebody that I'm yeah. that I was having those kinds of existential doubts. And then I was able to push forward uh, with it. And it was lonely and it was hard in sometimes, but you know, you just kind of scratch out a little bit every day and keep going and think about, you know, eyes on the prize. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did it. You know, the book has done very well. It was on the bestseller list for I think 14 weeks. So people seem to respond well to it. And, and it was just, you know, I can use that now going forward. If there's another time where I have a difficult project, I can Mm. remember that it was difficult. I made a plan for myself and I pushed through, uh, as far as the biography also difficult, but honestly, Easier in some ways to start because it allowed me to reach out to people and start to have conversations and start to make connections and, and sit around and talk about Tony and listen to people tell their stories about Tony in a way that felt much less lonely and much and very, very cathartic and allowed me to ask a lot of the questions that I maybe would have asked Tony or, or, you know, the questions that I was left with in the wake of his death. And so it was, it felt uh, like a many, many therapy sessions for myself. And I think for a lot of the people that I spoke with, a lot of the people at the end of the conversation would say, you know, I'm really glad you reached out. I'm really glad I had this chance to talk about Tony to, to you know, to, to put this down. And, and it, you know, it, it was part of a lot of people's process of, of moving through grief as well. So it's been, it's been really instructive. You know, my own, um, mom just died two weeks oh, ago. And, uh, I feel so like, sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's been, um, it's a, it's a, it's a tough time, you know, and it it's very, very different. Couldn't have been more different yeah. than Tony's death, but having experienced the loss of Tony has definitely given me some tools to, to work through now this, this fresh grief that I'm going through. So it's uh, you know, everything can be a gift if we, if we frame it in there the right way. There seriously is the a yeah. thing to
0: death tools. I mean, I don't know if that's the, mm-hmm. if we can talk about it in that way, but I think it, you just become a different person and can handle things differently. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Right. And, and not, not only has it, you know, proven a gift for you in a way, but for us as, as lifelong fan. I mean, as long as we've known yep. him, we've been fans, we couldn't watch the show. Haven't. I still, it's hard for me to watch the show, but I bought both of the books, you know, read the books and it helped. It helps us as, as, um, fans of his, because it was just so sudden, right. And, and, and to find a connection, to have some empathy, understanding, and hopefully this book will help, other people that are going through similar things. I mean, all of us are going through, you know, depression, anxiety of some sort, especially these days. Um, So I'm hoping that it'll, it will also help others just that are in finding themselves Mm -hmm. in that place because look at all the people he Mm -hmm. had to reach out Mm -hmm. to, you know? Um, And, and that was what was so overwhelming to me about the book was like, wow, all these people really loved him on such a deep, Mm -hmm. deep level. Um, And, and it's, it's important that you got all these voices because people know mm. you in different ways, depending <laughs> on the history of your relationship. And I'm curious to know why you chose to leave your voice mm-hmm. out of it. And, and also, if you could have shared a story, I'm sure you have some <laughs> like, oh, should I put this in? <laughs> what would it be? What would have been at least one of the stories you Yeah. Well, shared? so uh,
2: Daniel Halpern, our editor, did say to me, you know, I think that you should also be interviewed for this Book, and you should include your memories and your insights. And I was a little on the fence about it, but I said, All right, you know, if my editor tells me to do something, I'll do it. Uh, so I had someone else interview me. And it was a very useful conversation. And it helped me kind of, uh, you know, work out some of my memories and my grief. And it, it was um, honestly, it was someone who was reluctant to speak with me for the book. So this was kind of a way to warm him up was to get him to interview me. And then eventually (laughs) he agreed to be interviewed. Mm. So I had a couple of, you know, ulterior motives, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I just felt like I had so much good material from so many other people. And the truth is that my, my voice and my insights are there on every page in the questions that I ask people in the parts of the interviews that I chose to To include and the chronology of the way that they land on the page, uh, the people that I chose to reach out to, the relationships that I had. So I I, I do feel like this is a book with me in it. And I was able to write, uh, you know, a fairly lengthy introduction Mm -hmm. to the book. So I do feel like my voice is there. And, you know, I just. Uh, In terms of stories that I would tell, I mean, you know, I had a couple of fun adventures with Tony. I I didn't travel regularly with Tony and the crew. I'm not a, a, you know, a career television producer. And I think, you know, he wanted somebody to hang back and handle things in New York. But I did get to go on a couple of um, great uh, trips with the crew over a number of years. And, uh, And there were some really fun times. One of the most, there were a couple of really great ones train from Kanazawa in Japan, which is kind of on the Northwest part of the main island uh, over to Tokyo one day. And uh, we were changing locations. The crew was taking vans across the island because they had all their equipment. Tony and I took the uh, Shinkansen, the bullet train. Uh, So that first of all was just super fun. I had never done that before. And to have the lunch and, you know, I knew that this was like, he just loves Japan. He loved Japan. And, you know, to see him kind of really Reveling in you know the bento mm-hmm. box lunch and the beautiful service and the luxury of the the seats and you know the whole experience. But what was so funny to me on that trip was that we we met uh, at the train station and went up to the platform and one of the producers had given me our paper tickets and actually no she gave she gave each of us our own tickets. And as we're walking up to the, we get on the platform and Tony sees that there's uh, one of those uh, very ubiquitous uh, coffee machines on the, on the platform. And it's a, you know, it's a vending machine that, that's, uh, that vends both hot and cold drinks. And he has talked about this before. He just loves this idea that you can get hot coffee in a can. It's not good. It doesn't taste good, you know, but it's this, you know, very uniquely Japanese and, you know, fun kind of kitschy thing. So he's like, oh, the, the coffee, you know, and he also was very conscious of This was my first time uh, on mainland uh, Japan. And so he really was very conscious about showing me all the cool stuff that he loves. He's like, oh, we got to get the coffee. And he takes off down the platform and I see his ticket flutter out of his pocket and down onto the platform. And it's like a windy day in March you know, and I'm just like, oh shit, you know, like we're going to lose, he's going to lose his ticket and we're not going to be able to get on this train. And, you know, it's like, this is a problem. You know, the, the crew has already like gotten into the vans and they're not gonna be able to help us. And so I go running after, you know, he's just takes off no idea. And I'm all over the tracks <laughs> I right. think that it kind of highlighted to me is that, you know, everyone thinks Tony was like this expert <laughs> traveler who never had any, (laughs) nothing ever went wrong. And he was like the man and he, you know, he was like on top of it. And that wasn't necessarily the case, you know, that he could just like carelessly lose his train ticket in order to get a a can of coffee, Um, you know, but it was very endearing, you know, and I was like, oh, thank God I'm here, you know, and grab the ticket and hand it back to him and we get the coffee and the train comes and it's great, you know, but so that was, that was a funny to me the an eye-opening thing to see that you know there's a lot of the magic of television that went into making him appear uh like obviously you know he had logged millions of miles of travel time and he could certainly uh you know make his way around the world in airports but um you know everybody needs help everybody Mm -hmm. needs a fixer or a producer (laughs) or a friend or uh, and then the other one was we were in sri lanka in 2017 and uh we took a train from uh, Colombo down uh, which is sort of in the the south central part of the island all the way up to the north to Jaffna which is uh, which was very very isolated during the civil war and uh, was a place where he couldn't go uh, when he on his first trip to Sri Lanka because the war was really just wrapping up and things were very very difficult there So this was now 2017. Jaffna had started to open up and we were able to to get up there and and do half the shoot up there. So very long train ride. It was very hot. Uh, It was there was no air conditioning. It was like 10 hours. And everyone on the crew had had some form of of upset (laughs) stomach or worse, uh, you know, in in (laughs) Colombo. And it kind of made its way around to everybody. And Tony had it particularly bad. And he was recovering, but he still was not feeling great. Uh, And they were shooting him on the train. And it was just it was like a, a challenging day. And there are all these great vendors come into the train mm. and they're carrying samosas and they're carrying uh, mm. what they call short eats in Sri Lanka, like all these different little fried foods, snacky things. So delicious. And he's like, nah, 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 nah. doesn't want any of it, you know, which is, which is surprising to me because he's, you know, again, it's like this is the guy that eats everything, you know, and he's just <laughs> kind of like nursing his stomach. And then we pull into, and there's all these stops, intermediate stops along the way we pull into uh, a station and we've got, you know, three minutes tops for people to get off and get back on. And we keep going and he sees that there's a pizza hut express (laughs) kiosk and he he makes one of the producers run out there and grab him like this doughy, sad, bland, just, you know, basically a disc of frozen (laughs) dough with cheese on it. And he's like, that's what I want. (laughs) So it was so funny to me that it was like, you know, you could be in this really interesting part of the world with really interesting food, but mm-hmm. sometimes you want what you want, you know? And again, yes. there's this idea that that he's constantly getting, you know, the most interesting and unusual thing. And it's like, even Anthony Bourdain sometimes just wants like a sad <laughs> personal pan <damn> pizza. <laughs> Sorry. So, so relatable.
0: <laughs> very relatable. Very um, oh. we're going to wrap up in just a minute, but I wanted to ask you, what do you miss most mm-hmm. about Anthony Bourdain? God,
2: you know, so much, uh, you know, I, I think that this, this sense of, even though he could be deeply, deeply cynical and, you know, you read 10 words that he's written and you can see that, but that he still maintained this unbelievable enthusiasm and kind of wide eyed. Uh, look at the world, that he had this, you know, beautiful, romantic sense of things. And when he loved something, he just loved it unconditionally. And that was such a, such a beautiful example to be around, you know, and it really, um, you know, there, I I think that, uh, you know, I miss that a lot. I just, I just miss that he could get excited about, you know, sometimes like the dumbest <laughs> things, like he was really into um, breakfast cereal, you know, and he could sort. <laughs> <laughs> of, It sort of snap you out of a, your own cynicism and your own kind of grief or whatever. And you'd be like, yeah, you know, breakfast cereal is amazing, you know, whatever it was. I really, really miss that. He was so interested in um, medical oddities and he collected like weird uh, old medical, uh, Victorian medical tools. And he was always reading about this stuff. Uh, and he wrote a book about about typhoid mm-hmm. called Typhoid Mary. It was about this uh, notorious cook, Mary Mallon, who um, had infected a lot of people in New York with typhoid in the in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he was really fascinated by her. So it's so heartbreaking to me. I mean, obviously, the pandemic is a horrible thing that has impacted mm-hmm. the world in a, in a many, many terrible ways. But I think, God, Tony would be so interested in the fact that we were living through a global pandemic, he would have, you know, all of the research he did for this book and all of his just interest in the way these things manifest around the world. I, I you know, I have dreams about him all the time that he comes back and it was just a misunderstanding or he just t- went off the grid for a few years. And I always, I'm like, God, I wish I could be like the person that gets to tell him like, dude, we're having a global <laughs> pandemic, you know? Cause I think, and I think also because he was this dude was not afraid of needles. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, he had like mm-hmm. a pretty active heroin habit in the eighties and then, you know, lots and lots of, of travel, uh, uh, medicine that he had to, to take in order to travel around the world. <laughs> His vaccine card was several mm-hmm. pages, you know? Right. So I think that he might have been able to bridge the gap for people who feel, you know, unsure about vaccines. He might've been able to in a, in a, hopefully a, a non-partisan, non-divisive way, say like, look, man, it's just a needle or, you know, these are the, these are, look at all the vaccines I've had to take just to be able to go to all these cool places. Mm-hmm. And you know, I just miss that, that he had this way of, uh, of sitting down with people that he might not agree with, but, but hearing them out and having a conversation. And I think that's something that is, you know, it's, we're very polarized right now. And, and uh, you know, it, it's tough and, you know, not to say he didn't have his strong opinions and he didn't, you know, <laughs> stand on the side of, of righteous causes, but he he was, he had a way of appealing to people that didn't necessarily agree with him.
1: That's such a good point. And I was saying that too, is like, I've had a vaccine passport since I first started traveling and all Mm -hmm. of a sudden you're acting like it's this huge deal when, Mm -hmm. you know, we've all had them for forever since Mm -hmm. the beginning of time. Anyway. Yeah. It's such a good point. Thank you so much, Lori, for, for these books, for these stories, mm-hmm. and for bring, for bringing us just some sort of solace and some kind of peace with just our love for him. I mean, I don't know if you know, but we did a two-part um, Bourdain pub crawl oh, uh, throughout wow. San Francisco, just going to some of his favorite places. We talk about him often, mm-hmm. I think, still to this day. So we're just really excited to have you on and just hear, hear your stories. So thank you for your work. And uh, again, we've been speaking to Writer, editor, and Anthony Bourdain's lieutenant of uh, <laughs> almost 10 years, uh, Lori Wooliver. It was really an honor. Thank you. Oh, thank you guys so much. It was really great to be here. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created,
1: hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim.
0: My co host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions.